Um, and it just, it's, it's awesome to be able to, to talk to other people and see other people. But, you know, one of the challenges when, when you go and you speak at different events in different places is um, you walk into a room, there's, there's just a sea of faces, a sea of eyes, um, and you don't really have a lot of connection. And so you just start laying before them truths of the Bible that are still true for them. They still matter to them. But, uh, you know, it, it takes a while before you really get into understanding who they are and their background and their story. And um, so uh, what I realize every time I go and do speaking engagements like that is uh, how much I love being here because, um, you know, when I get up and I, I see you and I see your faces. Is I, there's so much more than just I'm speaking to just random people. Um, we're doing life together. We're, we're waging war together. We're uh, diving into the Bible and, and seeing real sin being defeated. We're seeing real marriages being restored. We're seeing real healing happen and real hope being given to real situations. And so uh, it's really great to be back here. And just so you know, I just I couldn't shut up talking about you while I was away. And um, just know that, that people states away are deeply encouraged at what God's doing here uh, in and through you all. Um, uh, and just by his grace, it encourages um, people all over. So it was fun to see God work in that way uh, as well. So uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 20. Um, and Pastor Mike did a great job. McKinney did a great job last week um, just carrying on where we would have been. And then because uh, we had the snowstorm, I'm just going to pick up real quick and fill in the gap, backfill where uh, I would have taught um, in chapter 21 to 18, which is the parable of the wicked tenants. Um, and then we're going to keep going and, and, Lord willing, land the plane on, on Easter. Um, and uh, so um, if you're new or visiting, just want to say it's awesome that you're here, awesome that you're gathering with us. If you're wondering what we do here, I want you to know that at its simplest point, this is just simply a worship service where we desire to worship the triune God of the scriptures and uh, namely and profoundly displayed through the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we worship this Jesus by singing. That's why we just sang some songs and that talk about this Jesus Christ and what he's done and who he is. And, and we celebrate him for those realities. We also worship Jesus by opening up this Bible and walking through the Bible and teaching the Bible and learning the Bible because the Bible is the only perfect thing that God has given us outside of his son and it perfects us as we read it and see it and enjoy it. Um, uh, we also love to give generously because God gave generously in himself. So we uh, give if you're a member here or a regular attender in the small silver boxes in the back. And we also uh, observe and worship Jesus by what's called the Lord's Supper. That's what these tables are up front. Um, it's not just because we get hungry in the service. It's because it actually means something profound that the, the, the crackers represent the body of Jesus that was broken for us and the blood that was shed is the juice representative of the forgiveness of sin that we get nourished by and reminded of every week that we gather. And so um, we love to remember those things. And so um, we're thrilled you, you jumped in to join us. Hopefully uh, God will uh, allow the truth to land on your heart in a way that is fruitful and profitable. Um, so we love Christian, non-Christian alike. We believe this truth transforms and heals and makes new uh, in the good news of the gospel. So um, let me ask God to uh, do a great work in us this morning and for the Holy Spirit to be kind. God, we're thankful that we get to gather as a people, thankful that we um, are privileged to have the good news. And God, in a, in a place, in a nation, in a time, in a history such as this, we consistently need not just good advice, we need really good news. So God, thank you that you've brought it to us and offered it to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would nourish us well in that this morning. I pray that we would have good examination of our hearts. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would do what only you can do, that you would open blind eyes, that you would alleviate deaf ears, that you would uh, help hurting hearts to find um, health and remedy not in themselves, but in Jesus Christ. God, use 
this time uh, for the advancement of your cause and your mission. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 20, just a, a small reminder just to kind of catch us back up to speed really quick. This is where um, Jesus is basically kind of rolling out of his kingship. What, what's happening is he is fully fixed to heading towards Jerusalem to um, demonstrate and, and fully fulfill that he is the king that he's been talking about since he was born of the Virgin Mary and he's been doing his ministry, preaching, teaching, healing, casting out demons. He's been doing all of this while he's been going after the religious establishment, showing that, that their self-righteousness and their works and their merits that's all built upon themselves for salvation is not sufficient because he's the one that came to bring salvation. He's the one that has been promised. He's the one that's been talked about. He's the one that has been prophesied about. He's the one who has been calling out from God since Genesis 3 saying, hey, my deliverer is going to come and make wrong what you messed up in the garden. And so um, Jesus comes and you've got uh, a lot of outcast people, a lot of low life people that the religious establishment thinks they don't deserve grace, they don't deserve mercy. Jesus goes after them and shows that those who are keenly aware of their need for grace are those who find grace. Those who are keenly aware of their need for help and mercy in Jesus find it. And so um, as he's been doing this, he's been kind of protecting these people from the false uh, accusations, the false doctrine, the, the heretical ways of the religious elite, and he's also been welcoming those who want to understand the true gospel of grace. And so um, he's been rolling in as he came in on the cult. Remember, he didn't come in on a white horse like a king would to bring about war. He came in to bring about peace through the blood of himself and the cross. So he came on a cult. This was prophesied hundreds of years before, and so he, he rides, and then he just lays waste to the temple because these people were using it for their own achievements, for their own fame, for their own promotion, not for the glory of God. And so um, there's a lot of reasons why these religious are going, well, hold on a second. Like, who are you to come in and do this? And Jesus is just going to remind them, um, that's because I'm the king of the universe. Um, I can do whatever I want. Um, all this exists for me and my name and my fame. So when you laid waste to that, when you get involved in that in ways that are dishonoring to me, I'm going to go after you. And so here Jesus is going to continue to show us this understanding of authority, this understanding of, of him coming to demonstrate that he's not simply your co-pilot, right? Like Jesus doesn't offer suggestions, right? We learned a couple weeks ago that Jesus makes demands because he can, right? Because he's trying to lead you into fullness of life and ever-increasing joy. He's not doing it because he's trying to rob you or take from you. He's trying to actually advance himself in you, which grows more of himself in you, which gives you more joy and him more glory. And so um, he's after our hearts, and that's a good thing. So we're going to see the theme in our text this morning, verse 1 of chapter 20. Luke writes this, one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching, this is after he uh, told everybody to get out, who was uh, loitering and extorting the poor, as Jesus is teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I love this, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John, now you can just see him go, well, hold on a second, I asked you a question, but when God tells you, no, I'm gonna ask you a question, well, I guess you have to answer it. So he says, you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe me? But if we say from man, all these people are gonna stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they didn't know where it came from. 
And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay, so here's what's profound. You see Jesus. I know if, if, if you're anyone with any, any sort of intellectual integrity at all, you're reading this going, man, Jesus is just brilliant, uh, right? And the reason he's brilliant is because he is God in the flesh. I, I tell you guys all the time, I mean, part of me just really growing in either my conversion or really just simply understanding Jesus was just reading the gospels and reading the ways that he, he spoke and talked. Like, you can't make this stuff up. And so here Jesus is here, and what you see Jesus doing consistently throughout his ministry, number one, is even days from the cross, he's preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of himself. Now, this is essential to Jesus' ministry. Like, this is absolutely necessary. Now, yes, Jesus fed the poor. Yes, Jesus loved people. Yes, Jesus did humanitarian social justice efforts, but it was never extracted from or untied to teaching and preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ. And so you got to understand, Jesus was primarily always about that. That's why we uphold the preaching and teaching ministry in the church. And that's why he always wanted people to know the realities of sin and salvation. This was always his primary mandate and message. So even days before the cross, he's still warning, loving, calling people to salvation found in his own sacrifice, which he will ultimately do in just a few days. And here's what's also going on in this text. Chapter 20, just so you know, is just known as like the day of questions. Most commentators and theologians just call it that. Here, here's why. Because it's where you just read, and you saw it from Pastor McKinney last week, where the religious establishment, the Sanhedrin, made up of three groups, the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the, and the Pharisees, who you see here, um, they're kind of like the, the governing body of the Jews. They're, they're basically trying to trap Jesus in something to arrest him on the spot, right? Ever since John 11, there's a price on his head, so uh, they're just aggressively going after him, trying to take him in, and, and so they're trying to come up with questions. So it's just, this whole chapter is just question after question after question from religious establishment trying to trap Jesus, and so here they come up with one, and I, I love this. Um, they get together and they're like, okay, we need to publicly shame Jesus. Like, we need to publicly humiliate him. So what theological question can we come up with that'll stump him or that he can answer to where he'll claim he's the Messiah and then we can just arrest him on the spot for blasphemy? That's what they're thinking. How can we cleverly come up with a plan that will get rid of this guy? We don't like that he attacks our self-righteousness. We don't like that he attacks all the good things we're trying to do. They didn't realize they were actually leading people astray. Listen, they hate that Jesus goes after their heart instead of their hands. They hate it. Because what can they do with their hands? Well, we do everything right. I mean, we worship right, we pray right, we give, I mean, we do all these things right. I mean, we act right morally on the outside, our outside shell looks all good, and that's why I keep saying the God of the Bible is aggressively committed to going after your heart, not just your hands. You can just go after your hands, you can clean yourself on the outside, you can't fix internally what's screwed up. And so he goes after your heart, we don't like that, right? We slap his hand away. And he's got to keep going after it because that's where true transformation is found. That's where true fullness of life is found. And so they hate that he's doing this. So they're trying to come up with some way to just get rid of him, to get him off their backs. And of course, Jesus is ultimately going to go to the cross anyways and, and do all of this. So they get together and they think about a way to come up with a theological question to publicly humiliate him or arrest him. And they come up to Jesus after they have their question and they go, okay, Jesus, who gave you the authority to do everything that you're doing? I mean, you don't have a seminary degree. Didn't pass an ordination. Like, how, who, who gave you the authority to, to teach the things you're doing? And as they ask these things, it's no wonder they ask them. Because Jesus just finished riding into the city on a colt, claiming to be 
king and laying waste to the temple where they worshiped. So who are you? You deserve to explain yourself. Like you can't come in here and do all this without some explanation. And another reason they ask this is because any teacher, any person that was proclaiming to demonstrate they knew the truth would always ascribe where they got it from. Like what rabbi they learned it, what tradition they learned it from, what council they grabbed it from. Yet Jesus doesn't need to explain where he got his authority. He got his authority from himself. Right? He's God, right? He is, he is giving the very authority of God. Mike said last week, when Jesus speaks, God is speaking. And so he's like, hold on a second. Uh, that's a cute question. I've been telling you for weeks and the last three years where I get my authority. I've been telling you that I'm God, right? He hasn't hid that from anybody. And so Jesus doesn't answer him because it's not time yet. In God's providence, it's not time yet for him to be arrested. And he's going to willingly give himself over when Judas does it. But it's not that time yet. So he says, hey, let's make a deal, guys. I love it. <laughs> you answer my question, I'll answer yours. Sounds like a good plan. So um, the authority of John the Baptist, you guys all know John the Baptist. Was the authority of John the Baptist from man or from God? Now here's what he's really asking. Jesus is really saying, you tell me where I get my authority. Now here's why he's asking this question. If they can answer his question then he doesn't need to give them an answer to theirs. So they're in a pickle. So they call a timeout. They get in their holy huddle. They're like, okay, right? They're like, guys, okay, man, this, is, this stinks. I didn't see that one coming. So they run through their options. <laughs> okay, so if we say that John the Baptist was from God, well, or we say he's not from God, well, then the whole place is going to riot. We're going to be stoned to death because they all believe he was a prophet. And then if we say he is from God, Jesus is gonna be like, I know, I've been telling you he is, so uh, why don't you believe when he says to trust in me and turn from your sin for salvation, how are you doing with that? So they're like, okay, so we can either be killed or submit to Jesus, don't like either of them. Right, so they come out of their holy huddle and here's what they do. They do what every self-righteous person does. They don't admit they're wrong and they never say they're sorry. They just walk away. No, we don't know. And Jesus says, fine, then I'm not going to answer your question. I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do mine. Now, here's what he's laying on our hearts. Here is what is happening here, is we don't want to tell Jesus he has no authority. We just want to tell him what his authority is. Right? All right I mean, hold on, Jesus. Um, I'm going to let you know where you can have authority over my life and where you can't. I'm not gonna say you outright don't have authority. Like, I believe you're God. I believe you're the incarnation. I believe that you offer forgiveness of sin. I believe you paid the debt. I believe that you rose. I believe that you uh, evidenced all the things that you say about yourself. So I believe you have all rightful authority just as God the Father because you are God. But here, um, you can have authority over this area of my life, but not this area of my life. You can have authority over this, but not marriage. You can have authority over this, but not my wallet. You can have authority over this, but not like my decisions. This, but not my mind. This, but not my hands. 
And you just start picking and choosing. And Jesus has consistently shown, no, there's no such thing as part-time followers when following me. Like, my authority is laid bare over all of your life. And he does that because he knows that's where deepest joy and life is found. If you only give Jesus half of the spaces that he demands authority, you're gonna walk in some weird quasi-Christianity that doesn't exist and is bizarre and leaves you blame-shifting and frustrated and anger for eternity. Like when you start giving over to him every area of your life with the authority he rightfully demands and deserves, then he can wire you back, heal and restore all those places to operate in a way to where now you're walking in the true fullness of life. So it's weird when you say, Jesus, you can have this area, but Jesus, you can't have this area. Well, then he doesn't have authority. You're not giving him authority over your life. You're telling him what he can do and you start playing the role of God, which we know goes all the way back to Genesis 3, which commits the universal sin of the universe and you're all the way back to needing to repent again of your idolatry. And so here he is just revealing to us these amazing, amazing things in that he demands and desires full authority. And so these people, he just exposes what they love more than him. They care more about their own reputation. They care more about their wealth. They care more about their power. They have no intention of submitting, confessing, repenting. That's why Jesus consistently repeats what John the Baptist says, hey, repent for forgiveness of sin. He's been consistently showing that repentance is what brings about salvation through the blood of his cross. Repentance, turning from sin, turning to this glorious Jesus who took the wrath of God for you, paid the debt for you in your stead, for you in your place and says, here, you get my righteous life. I get to take your sinful life. The beautiful exchange happens and you walk clean and free and he gets all the dirt and he does it because he's God and because he walked in human flesh, the fully obedient life he couldn't. It's amazing, right? But, but here's the thing. If, here's what I've found historically. Um, all these things that, that, that we do as a gathered body, community groups, discipleship, um, Bible studies, formations classes, like if there's no confessing and repenting in those, like, I don't know what you're expecting to happen. Like if you're not laying authority over to Jesus as you walk in those lanes, as you gather, you know where you're gonna be? You're just gonna be a lifelong attender. Like that's all you're gonna be. Like otherwise you're gonna be constantly chasing a tail that you can't catch. Going, I don't know why there isn't any change. I don't know why anything's happening. I don't know why you know, Jesus isn't doing anything in my life because there's no honest confessing of sin, repenting of ways you know that you're rebelling against the good God of the universe where he's offering joys, laying before you generously, lovingly, exceedingly. Hey, walk in the peace of God. Walk in the kindness of God. You can take it right now. It's for your grabbing it. You say, I want my sin. I want to hold on to this. I want to hold on to this. And you refuse to confess that sin, find forgiveness of sin in Christ, and repent and turn from it and walk in newness of life. And you're going, going around going, man, this thing ain't working. And all of a sudden you find yourself 55, 65, 75, seeing no change, no evidence you're a Christian going, what happened? Well, you never had any authority in your life to begin with. You never wanted him as your authority. You wanted him as your co-pilot to kind of sit down and offer you suggestions and help you out in life as you go. And here Jesus is revealing fullness of life happens when you take me in my fullest of authority. And it's been my experience until you're willing to do that, until you're willing to admit that you chase, love, and serve other things more than him, you will constantly chase that tail that you will never grab hold of. And so Jesus is now gonna just warn of his authority by giving a parable. By now, if you've been with us for any length of time, you're like, 
is he done parables yet? I mean, he gives a parable now. He's ramping up the parables. Well, he loves doing them because they're just a story to illustrate and teach a theological truth or concept. So he's gonna basically warn of his authority by telling a parable, verse nine. He began to tell the people this parable. Now he, he tells the, the parable to people, but he knows the Sanhedrin can hear him. This is intentional by Jesus. It's like when you want something, somebody to hear what you're saying, but you don't tell them directly, you just say it loud enough while they're nearby. Jesus can do it because it's always birthed out of righteousness. We don't always do it because it's usually birthed out of arrogance or something wicked in our hearts. But Jesus is doing it because he can. He's trying to get them to see the righteousness of himself, verse 9. And he began to tell people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so they could give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. And they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. They sent a third. (laughs) This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let's kill him so the inheritance can be all ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. All right, there are a couple characters. I need you to understand who they are, right? First is you've got the owner who plants the vineyard and gives it to these tenants and says, hey, work this ground, be fruitful, pay me back my rent, I'll let you keep some of your work. And he sends servants to say, hey, tell me how they're doing, tell me how they're cultivating, and you bring back some of the fruit of their work, fruit of their labor. Um, the owner of the vineyard is just representative of God. This speaks to all that is made is by God and ultimately for God. He gives generously, exceedingly, lovingly, for the joy and worship of his name so that we might bear spiritual fruit. We've been learning this. Parable of the 10 Minas, right, a couple weeks ago. Hey, um, um, everything that you have is given by God for God. So the Minas that you have is, is all to be used to steward towards the kingdom's cause, not towards your own. So the question's never, well, here, God, you can have this. It's, it's all his. How much do you want me to have, hold on to, God? How much do I get to keep? So there's a stewardship issue here. The vineyard in context is the nation of Israel. Um, and, and this is clear. There's a, a vine metaphor throughout the Old Testament. You can go to Isaiah 5 explicitly 700 years prior where Jesus, God basically says, Israel, you're a fruitful vine that I tend to that you might bear spiritual fruit. You're in my vineyard. So he's speaking to Israel here. It's a symbol that he always gave to them. Um, and this is really speaking to that they might get their life physically and spiritually from God so that as they're nourished by him, they might grow and bear fruit and advance the mission of his name so it might reach and grow to the ends of other nations and ultimately the ends of the earth. He's, that's why he, he created and, and saved and called Israel was so that, hey, so you guys can be a light of my glory to all the surrounding nations. So as they're all wicked, wandering in sin, they see me as the king, the God of your nation. They go, man, look at that God. Look at how glorious he is. That was the whole point. He wanted his glory to be shown through him calling and making a covenant with the people of Israel. So God is the father who owns the vineyard, the nation of Israel in general, and the people of God in particular now are to be cultivated, fruitful people that are blessings to the nations of the earth. And then you have the wicked tenants. They're called tenants, but they're wicked. Now, this in context is the religious establishment. These are the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, and this could be some of us. 
All right, and, and here's what they've been doing. They've been given this land to cultivate. They've been giving all that they've been given by God for ultimately the glory of God, and here's what they're doing. They're greedy, they're selfish, they're stingy, and they're using it for their own glory and fame and not the glory of God. They're using the temple for their own fame and not the glory of God. They're using their lives, right, for their own fame and glory and not the glory of God. So much so that they're teaching a system of salvation that is anti-gospel and not for the gospel of God. And so here they've cultivated an attitude of thievery, not gratitude. They're going, man, this is my land. This is my stuff. These are my possessions. God can't tell me what to do with this vineyard that he's given me, but it's God's vineyard and their life is his. Right? These are the people that go, man, God can't tell me what to do what I want. Man, this is my body. This is my income. This is my wallet. This is my house. These are my possessions. Man, I earned it. I worked the wages. He gave you the energy to work your wages. He gave you the eyes to see in your job. He gave you the ears to hear in your job. He gave you the heart that still beats to work in your job. He gave you the air that you have to breathe to do your job. So really, you're existing off of him saying you still can. Right, so everything you have, all that you do, is really sustained by the God of the universe and for the God of the universe and his glory and his worship. And so the moment we say, no, I deserve this, I demand this, I need to have this, God's going, okay, hold on, let's do some retracting here. And so we're seeing right in this parable that this is exactly how they're operating. And then you have the servants, and this is so important. The servants are representative of the prophets of God. Now, I want to just do a quick backtrack just to help us really get in really where these prophets are. Here's what happens if you know your Bible at all or if you've heard the story of Christianity. God gives creation, right? And listen, none of us were there. None of us were there telling him where to put things and how to place planets or anything. It was the Trinitarian God fully satisfied in its own existence, calling things into being for the glory of his name, for the satisfaction of himself. Like, he doesn't make humanity because he needs humanity. He made humanity so that they might find great joy and everlasting fulfillment in his name, and therefore his glory increases and he gets more. And so here he makes creation, he gives creation. Everything we have is to enjoy from him and for him. We're here to serve him, belong to him invest in him and through the fall of our first parents Adam and Eve we're all tied to that through original sin by nature and choice we pervert his good design and commands and we say no we want glory we don't want to give it to you and so um, we're going to do what we want so we buy the lie of the enemy in Genesis 3 right along well God didn't really say that he didn't really say that oh he wants us to be like God well I want to be like God man that's enticing so we want to be God our idolatry happens out of the gate and they sin they eat of the tree they flee because they realize what they did they're filled with shame, God comes and covers them with animal skins. And that's all the foreshadow. Ultimately, my son's going to come and cover you in your shame and your sin. So all of this is rolling out. So as they do this, as we become idolatrous and greedy, God sends prophets to warn and to love us back to his name. That's what happens. Okay, so this is ever since Genesis 3. So God gives man and woman the joy to create, cultivate, worship him, just like this vineyard. They say, no, we want it for our desires. The rest of the Bible is God sending messengers going, I'm gonna bring you back to me. I'm gonna restore you. But you keep running. Now, here's the thing. As God in his kindness and mercy calls out to humanity saying, hey, there's still time to find salvation. There's still time to find restitution with me, reconciliation with me. You can still mend what's been broken. We keep running. 
So, so God sends Noah in Genesis 6. Man, the world's gonna be destroyed, obliterated. The rebellion's so bad. The wickedness is so bad. I'm almost regretting even creating all of this. And, and here we still run. Noah and his family is spared. They see God as good still. God is kind. They still trust his word. And so they turn to him, get on the ark. Then you have Genesis 12 with Abram. God says, hey, through your line, man, your descendants are gonna fill the earth and it's gonna be a catalyst to this deliverer that I promised in Genesis 3 who will ultimately be the one to rescue and ransom people from their sins. Then he sends Moses who comes in to save the people from slavery. Then he gives them judges. He gives them kings, Saul, Solomon, David. And throughout the kings and judges period, he keeps sending these, keeps sending these men and women named who are prophets, who are saying, hey, return to God. He's a good God. He offers mercy still. Can you believe he's still compassionate? He's still not with, he's still withholding his right anger. That he's still not just annihilating justice all the time that you can still find mercy and reconciliation with this God. So he keeps sending these messengers over and over. It keeps saying, every time you rebel against him and go a different direction, don't you see how miserable you are? And every time you stay close to him and follow his, com- follow his commands, don't you see how much peace there is? Jeremiah, one of those. <clears throat> Jeremiah 2. He says this as he's calling out to the people in the rebellion. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? He's speaking for God. And went after worthlessness and became worthless. Verse 7, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and you made my heritage an abomination. God's going, what happened here? Man, I wanted to give you the best. I wanted to give you the best land. I want to give you relationship with me, restoration with me, and you're going after just worthless things? Trinkets and toys and crackers when you can have steak dinner with me? You're continuing to rebel. You're continuing to go after other things outside of my name. You could care less about what I gave to you. And then look in verse 12. He says, go and proclaim these words towards the north and the south and say, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger. For I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. God goes, man, I thought if I gave you this land, I blew your minds with my creation, then maybe you would look at that and go, man, God, you're so kind, you're so glorious, you're so generous, you're so merciful, I've got to have you. I can't wait to return to you. Tell me how to have restitution with you. God's going, do we have any takers? Fullness of life can be had. Forgiveness can be had. Salvation can be had. Everyone says no. And here in this parable, the three servants, right, that go to the rebellious tenants, find out they're destroying his land, trotting the vineyard, taking advantage of his kindness. They're all beaten and thrown out. You know what happened to Jeremiah? He's mocked, thrown in a pit, left for dead. It's just all reminding them of what they've done to all the prophets who have come to warn them of the coming judgment and the mercy they can have in God through Christ. So Jesus is saying this parable going, Israel, what's going on with you guys? My father, God in heaven, who gave you this vineyard, gave you the world, gave you his creation. You're just trotting his planet, trotting his glory, belittling his name, living for you and not his name and renown. You want nothing to do with him. And I've sent prophet after prophet to warn you and you just keep beating him up and shaming him and killing him. And so he goes, man, what else do you want me to do? I gave you my land, I gave you my love, I gave you my prophets, maybe I'll give you my son. 
Here's the point. God's really patient. God's so patient. Because at this point, if we're honest, the landowner should have rightfully sent in an army to blow up the joint. Right? Listen, don't you go, no, that's mean. Come on. I mean, if you planted a vineyard, you had tenants doing this, abusing everything, killing off your guys that were coming in to just ask them how they were doing, if they were paying the rent, being just an honest employee, you wouldn't blow up the joint? People are like, man, something's just messed up with these guys. I mean, the fact that God still says, hold on, let's keep trying this. Let me keep calling out to you. Let me keep sending you messengers. Instead, the landowner does what God has done. I'm patient. I've sent prophet after prophet. You've put them in exile. You've beaten some. You've murdered others. So now I'm going to send my son. And he comes in human flesh, right, to the tenants of the earth who've trotted his vineyard, belittled his glory, and the innocent and righteous ones, the only ones that exist, come to seek and serve the guilty. Just like in this parable. How many of you truly, um, you, would, you would never treat your enemies like this? Patiently. Waiting, continually pursuing lovingly enduring all kinds of suffering. We don't. God does. I love when people are like, man, God's so unloving, God's so abusive, God's so violent. Okay, well, hold on a second. I mean, who's really? Because the God of the Bible, I see consistently coming to his enemies and consistently extending mercy and grace with the people who say, I don't want any. To those who are enemies of his name, not friends of his name. And God continually lays before us time after time after time openings for us to turn to his waiting grace. This is him engaging you. Um, For some of you, honestly, this might be why you're here this morning, that God graciously brought you here to be sent a preacher to tell you the good news of a good, gracious God who is exceedingly kind in taking the wrath that you deserve upon himself and becoming a substitute for you in your stead for your sin being an obedient life that you can never be on your own, giving you righteousness that is required of an infinitely righteous God that you will never merit through any of your duties and works. And he's going, it can be had today. You can have my son today, my beloved son. I sent him to you. I had him killed for you. Because look at what happens here, guys. In the parable, the wicked tenants go, Hey, that's the air. If we kill him off, we can have everything. Do you see the greed? Do you see the idolatry? Do you see their hearts are so perverted and so corrupt that even in the giving of Jesus, the beloved son, they go, it's more for us. So let's kill him off. This is the fundamental sin of the universe, right? We take what is God's for ourselves and we think by using what God gives for our own fame, our own achievements, that somehow peace will happen, comfort will be brought, and increasing joy will be found, right? That's the lie that we buy. So we think if we keep grabbing more of all this stuff that God gives us and really just abusing and using what God's given us instead of using it to glorify the one who made it and gave it, somehow we'll find fullness of life. Instead, you keep running into the brick wall because you're going after what's created and not the creator. 
That's what Romans 1 outlines, man. You need the creator. You don't need what's been created. What's been created was only to serve, to push you and prod you and call you to the one who made it all to be found fully in him and not in yourself. And so here we see these people doing the very same thing and they murder him. And that's just a foreshadowing what they're gonna do to Jesus in just a few days. Now the question becomes, is how we'll land the plane, what's the father gonna do? Well, let's see what happens. Most of us know even before reading this how this will play out. If you have a son, what is the father gonna do? Verse 15, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them. It's purposeful. It's intentional. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is like, hey, the doom for you, Israel, is the place you should have occupied is going to be given to those who want it. Like, I offered you my land, I offered you the prophets, I offered you my own son, and you just keep rejecting him. And you're ultimately going to kill him. The kindness of God, forgiveness of God, salvation of God, it's gonna be given to those who want it. You reject Jesus, you reject God. You reject Jesus, you reject salvation. You reject Jesus, you reject forgiveness. Jesus is continuing to roll out this warning that you want everything else but me. And I'm about to be slaughtered in four days on a cross for the sin of people who have rebelled against the name of my Father and my own glory, and I'm gonna atone for that sin. I'm gonna be the penalty for that sin. I'm gonna absorb the wrath for that sin on myself, and those who trust in me will receive fullness of life and forgiveness of sin. But it's in me. You need me. You need to want me. Like, I'm the answer here. So Jesus is going to them, hey, I'm the beloved son in the parable. Like, I'm being sent to you, and I've been sent to you, and I've been doing ministry, and you're gonna kill me. Just like you did all the prophets beforehand that tried to come and warn and call out to you in love. And the Father's away in heaven, and he sent me to the earth, and this is all his vineyard, and he sent me to the supposed people of God, the nation of Israel, and you're about to murder the beloved son just like the prophets. And they're like, no way! No, we're not. You see they're still in the closet? We're not gonna do that, even though literally they're days away from the inaugurating death of the Son of God. They're going, no, no, we would never do that. And that's why Jesus just quotes Psalm 118. He's like, um, this is how it's gonna be. Uh, don't you remember a thousand years ago when it was written that the, the builders rejected the chief cornerstone? The cornerstone's me. I'm what you build your life upon. I'm where everything starts. I'm the beginning and the end, and you've always rejected me. He's where you start. He's where you finish. Because to reject Jesus is to reject everything. You cannot find fullness of life outside of Jesus, brothers and sisters. Like, if you're gonna build your life on something, you have to lay the correct foundation, right? And you always start with a cornerstone. That's the most important thing in any project. It's gotta be firm, it's gotta be perfect, it's gotta fit perfectly, right? To make the rest of the foundation firm and the rest of the house sturdy. So Jesus is saying, you build everything off of me. Everything starts with me. Some of you are trying to build off everything outside of Jesus, which is why you're finding endless exhaustion and frustration and blame. 
When you build off of what the creator made and not upon the creator itself, it falls apart. Yet this is what postmodernism does, right? Uh, the philosophers, the historians, the sociologists, the physiologists. Um, he doesn't fit it as the cornerstone. <laughs> like he doesn't fit all the religions because he's a homeless guy who's like 30 who makes crazy claims like I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, I fit perfectly. I came as a humble servant to seek and save those who were lost. Yes, I am fully king, and I will demonstrate my kingship whenever I want. And I came humbly to rescue and ransom sinners who would find repentance and faith in me. And one day, yes, I'll absolutely return. And I hope when I return, I'm not the rock that crushes you instead of restores you. Because you can take the cornerstone now. You can take him as your forgiveness now. You can take him as your salvation now. You can have Jesus as your cornerstone now. What a wonderful invitation. Some of you want a great marriage, right? Um, you have to start with Jesus and then build off of that. If he's not central, then you're not gonna get anywhere. You might survive, you might last, but it won't have fullness of joy, fullness of meaning, fullness of purpose. Um, when you start seeing that Jesus is the one who demonstrated the most beautiful act of covenant-keeping love for his spouse, which is the church, and that that is a model and a picture and a glory of how our relationships and marriage work and act, all of a sudden the waters you're swimming in are much deeper, much more profound, and much more meaningful. Um, some of you guys want peace. Well, you need to start with Jesus and then work from there. I mean, he, by nature, is peace. And he established the primary peace necessary for our souls, which is peace with God through shedding his blood on that cross. See, see, that's why I talked to people, I talked to a lot of students this past weekend. And it was such an interesting conversation because I was encouraging them, and you know, the promise that Jesus gives you is Jesus. <laughs> like, like, Jesus does not promise that he will fix everything you don't like. His promise is he gives you something better than all of those things, which is himself. To walk through those things and through the suffering and through the ache into glory that's coming where absolutely every injustice, every act of insanity, every act of aggression, every angst, every pain, every frailty will be pushed back and peace will reign permanently with God for all of eternity where he wipes every tear from your eye. But until that time, you have him. That's his promise. And so all the time we'll go, well, what do I get for following Jesus? You get Jesus. Yeah, I know that. I, I know I get forgiveness of sin, and I get co-heirship with Jesus. I get to inherit all that he has, and I get his literal peace and his comfort and his God. inside the literal son of God, the creator of all things that indwells me as his Holy Spirit. He literally walks with me. It's the counselor given to me to actually coach me and like a marathon runner to, to show me where to go and show me how to step to protect me from sin, protect me from danger, to protect me from destruction, all the while trying to give to me exceedingly generously and lovingly. And they go, yeah, I know all that, but what else? I don't really know. I don't know what else you're looking for. He gives you everything in giving you himself. So to have Christ is to have everything, right? To not have Christ is to have nothing. So we must build all that we do off of Jesus. He must be the cornerstone, right? Otherwise, everything breaks down. Everything gets destroyed. 
And that's why Jesus gives this loving warning at the end. If you don't see me as the sin-forgiving, righteous, crediting cornerstone, then I become a different type of rock to you, one that falls on you and ultimately crushes you. And that's language that echoes that of hell. Eternal suffering, eternal torment. And so Jesus' question to these religious elite and people is the same one to us today. What will you do with the beloved son? It's a simple question, right? What will you do with Jesus? He has been sent to you. He's been sent to us already, and he will be sent again. And when he's sent a second time, it will be to judge the living and the dead. And those who have put their full weight and worth and trust upon what he has done and bank their salvation and their security and forgiveness of sin in all that Jesus has and decided to worship his name and repent of that sin and demonstrate that they are doing that by turning from sin and pursuing Christ. Man, that stone is the cornerstone that will build you all the way into eternal glory. Otherwise, it will be the stone that crushes you and judges you. And so what will you do with the beloved son? Now, here's the good news. Jesus Christ was murdered shamefully and painfully, was he not? He was everything in this parable and some. And here in this story, we don't see what goes on, but we know three days later the father raises him from death. And Jesus looks at you and he looks at me and he says, you rebelled, you mocked me, you shamed me, you trotted on my vineyard, you did not use what I gave you for my glory, you're using it for yourself. But if you turn and repent of your sin and trust in my beloved son, I'll have his death count for you and I'll write you into my will, and I'll make you an heir. Insane. <laughs> Insane. And that's the good news of the gospel that we come together to celebrate every week. That we were every bit the wicked tenants who were every bit trotting his planet and trotting his vineyard and using it for our wants and not his, and yet he still says, the beloved son that you killed, that you willfully mocked, willfully shamed, I'll let his death count for you and I'll write you into my will and I'll have it count for your sin and I'll have it count for your mocking. Is God not patient that he has us sitting here today hearing this wonderful good news that we can turn and have Jesus today? You know, um, here's why this is so important. <clears throat> I think a lot of us have read a lot of books, a lot of resources, Sorry. And they're all from the wrong vantage point. <laughs> the guilty party looking at the innocent party. Well, God can't judge. He's so harsh. He can't send to hell. That's so mean and aggressive. Hold on a second. We're the guilty party telling that to the innocent party, which I think shows us how wicked we really are. It shows us we don't really realize how deep our sin really goes. We don't realize how infinitely perfect he really is and how holy his name really has. And so here we are learning that Jesus is the good, gracious redemption for us. If you're not a Christian and Jesus' loving, gracious invitation to you is take him as the cornerstone. Trust him this morning. And he will not be the one that crushes you eternally. Those of us who are Christians, this gives us reason to take honest stock of our soul, Right? There are aspects of our life where Jesus is not the cornerstone, where I'm really building out just like the wicked tenant. 
He's laid before you all that you have and all that you are for his glory and for his renown, for fullness of life. See, this is the beauty of repentance. Jesus wired repentance and designed it in such a way that it leads to ever-increasing joy and ever-increasing glory to God. Because as you repent and turn from sin, you experience more freedom from sin, freedom from enslavement, more peace, more comfort, more everlasting joy, and God still gets the applause because he's the one who's doing it. And so what are the things that God is calling you to repent of this morning? What are the ways that you're just not giving him authority? Maybe you're not giving him authority in your marriage. You're not giving him authority in your finances. You're not giving him authority in your work, in your career, in your situation. You're not giving him authority in your anxiety. You're not giving him authority in your fear. You're not giving him authority where? Because he rules and reigns in that, and he wants to be the authority in that. To free you from the enslavement of that. Because when you try to be your own God in any of those spaces, it does not work out well. And those things become increasingly worse. Fear grows. Anxiety debilitates. Peace dissipates. Marriage crumbles. So let's ask God for the restorative power. I know we're busy men and women by default. We live in human history. That's why we love providing a few moments to just create space. So we're gonna give ourselves just a few moments before we come to the tables to do some examination, ask God to do a work in us, to repent where we need to repent, ask for grace where we need grace. Maybe some of you, this is all brand new to you. This is a lot for you to take in. Maybe it's simply, God, I'm hearing a lot of things. I'm trying to orchestrate all of this and understand all these things. Would you just speak to me clearly in this moment? God, would you show me and help me to clearly understand sin and the righteousness of Jesus and and what it means to repent of that sin and take you as my Lord, take you as my Savior. And for others, it's just simply saying, Holy Spirit of God, examine my heart. Right, I said a couple weeks ago, this Bible is like a mirror. It's like that of a mirror. It exposes us. It reveals what's really there. So say, God, expose me in this moment. Reveal to me where I need to place you as the full, assuring authority. And help me to walk in glad submission to that. Jesus, we appeal to your Holy Spirit to do only the things that it can do. We appeal to the Holy Spirit's power to do the powerful things that only it can do. God, would you free men and women in this room who need to be freed? Would you help men and women in this room that need help? Would you give spiritual sight to men and women in this room that need spiritual sight? God, would you be our cornerstone? Would everything reverberate from you?
May it not ever be the rock that would crush some. May people find true life this morning in Jesus. And God, as we take your supper, which you gave to remind us of how precious you are as the cornerstone, your body broken, your shed blood, will we do it and be nourished by the great benefits of remembering and receiving it, not to obtain righteousness, not to gain extra mercy, not as a merit to grow closer to you, but God as a means of grace to where you nourish our souls. We praise your name for what you've done and we give you this week. We ask you to reign as the authoritative God over the spaces of our hearts that you need to reign in. Help us, Jesus. We pray in the power of your name. Amen.